Father, we come now and we ask that you would feed us on your word. We know, Jesus, that you are the bread of life, but that also your word is bread. It's nourishment to us. Some of us, Lord, we're feeling really hungry. We need strengthened. We need nourishment from your word this morning. Uh, Others of us, we're distracted. We don't know the hunger that we have. Would you make us aware of that? Would you show us our need to be fed on your word this morning? We pray, Lord, that you would work through your word, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, convict us and challenge us, that you would shape us into people that are more in your image. Thank you for... Thank you for the passages that we're going to read this morning, the way they connect with each other. I pray that you'd stick them deep into our hearts and our minds, that they would help frame our our whole understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I like shortcuts. Um, When I'm going someplace and I come up on a traffic jam, I'm immediately finding other ways around, and I take great delight um, it's, it's a little bit of a competition. So I try to remember some key vehicles that are in the traffic jam, and then when I make it around the other side, if I come across them, I can gauge, you know, was this worth it or not if I made it around the other side, because it's a competition, right? Sometimes when I'm going somewhere, uh, it's a competition with myself to see how uh, both efficiently and scenically I can get somewhere Uh, Most of the time, efficiency wins out over the scenic aspect of things, because I want to get there fast, like most Americans. A couple years ago, I was down in Kentucky and um, was driving some really little back roads, middle of nowhere, and I got down to the bottom of a a valley, and the road just kind of disappears into the river and goes out the other side. So it was warm. I got out and just walked across the river to gauge how deep it was. And it wasn't particularly deep if you followed the right path. So I just got in, drove across. Here's video proof of me driving across the river. At most, it's only like six inches deep if you go in the right spot, right? Gets a little little bumpy out in the middle, driving over the rocks there. But don't worry, we've got our super off-road minivan to do this with. Turns out the real challenge was on the other side, which I don't have video to show you, but it turns into kind of a two-track going up through the, the side of the mountain there with just like rock and dirt walls on the side. So if I would have not made it up, I would have not even been able to get out of the van on the sides because it was so narrow. But it was, it was an interesting drive. But that saved me from having to go out and around, which would have taken like an hour to get all the way out around those roads and get back there. So it was a shortcut. It was a good shortcut. Sometimes we take shortcuts in life, though, right? We've all probably done this, whether it's something like cheating on a test or a little lie or bending of the truth in order to get ahead or um, not being quite as honest as you should be in order to make the sale or get the promotion or secure the inheritance or whatever it is that you're trying to do in order to, to get ahead of other people in life. We are sometimes very tempted to do such shortcuts because... Like in the words of Queen, we want it all, we want it all, we want it all, and we want it now. We don't want to wait for things. Today is the first day of what we call Holy Week, or sometimes Passion Week. And when this week comes around, we use the word passion in a different way than we normally do. The word passion comes from the Greek word pasco, which means 
suffering. This makes a little bit of sense because if you are consumed with passion for someone and you can't have that someone, your passion leads you to suffering. That's how they're linked there. But in this case, with the final week of Jesus' life, the passion of Jesus is the suffering of Jesus, where he's betrayed, where he's arrested, where he's beaten, where he's crucified. The first day of that week, today, is Palm Sunday. And while we are going to read a Palm Sunday passage today, we're actually going to spend most of our time looking at stuff that happened three years before Palm Sunday. It turns out that the temptation of Jesus back at the beginning of his ministry has some very significant parallels to the last week of his life. And if we look at these two side by side, we will understand that three-year period better in between, and I trust that we will marvel at the way that Jesus chose to suffer for us in that last week. Right before Jesus' three years of ministry, two important things happened. He was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. When he was baptized, it was one of those rare, rare moments where all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are not only present and active, but are observable by regular humans. Those who were standing around there watching Jesus be baptized could see the Son be dunked under the water, could hear the voice of God the Father from heaven, and could see the Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove, temporarily being uh, visible for the benefit of those around them. That was a a momentous day in the history of the world where the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all observable by the people with their own eyes and ears. Right after that moment, when the Trinity is... just displaying their unity, their love, and their support for each other, something surprising happens. We're going to be looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11 here today, and it's on page 809. And what you're going to want to do is probably keep a finger or a bookmark in that Matthew passage, and we're going to flip to a couple other passages as we go through. So Matthew 4, 1 through 11 says this. It was right after the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you're like, yeah, I've heard this a whole bunch before. But imagine if you're hearing this for the first time, and you had this, you had this basic idea of the, the, the Christian understanding of God, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all united as one, but yet three distinct persons, and they're, they're perfect, and they're always in a loving relationship with each other. And then you read this, that the Spirit led the Son out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That would be a surprising turn of events if you were reading this for the first time. Now, Jesus is not going to be tempted by the Spirit or tempted by the Father. He's simply led out to the place where he will be tempted by the devil. In fact, in James 1.13... We read this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when you, when you face a temptation, that temptation is never from God. 
He allows it. He uses it, but he is not tempting you. Instead, it is always your enemy, your adversary, Satan, who wants to destroy you and tempt you. In this particular case, Satan, the great rebellion leader, is trying to derail the plans of God. He's going to tempt God the Son to rebel against God the Father because Satan wants to stop the plans of God. But the sovereign plans of God can never be derailed. Never. Now you can take great comfort in that. Because God holds you in his hands and his plans for you will never fail. But notice, that doesn't mean things are always going to be easy because the plans of God in this situation are for Jesus, God the Son, to go through temptation and hardship. So when we say that the sovereign God, sovereign plans of God will never fail, that also means even when the sovereign plan of God leads you through the middle of suffering and temptation. Jesus is about to be tempted in some specific ways. And many years later, the writer of Hebrews would say this about him. says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. It's not as though Jesus, the great high priest, is just coasting through life with no worries because he's God. No, he can sympathize with our weakness. But says, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, we have all fallen to temptation. Jesus did not fall to temptation, which is why he can be that perfect sacrifice for us. But notice what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say there is Jesus understands when you are tempted. Not just in his mind, or not just reading your mind, like when that thought comes into your mind and you're tempted, Jesus knows that thought. He understands that. But more than that, what he writer of Hebrews is telling us, is that Jesus understands, like in his being, he understands what it means to be tempted because he himself was tempted. And not just in the three ways that we're going to read about here. Hebrews says, tempted in every way. Jesus knows how tempting that temptation is. He had to resist it too. If we go back to Matthew 4, we read this. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We would put in parentheses, duh, right? Of course, he was hungry. Now, 40 days of fasting is about the limit for a healthy human being. You go past that, and you're very quickly doing irreparable damage, permanent damage to your body and your brain. So this is like, this is the extreme fast Jesus is hungry, and Satan is going to take advantage of that hunger. Verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So first he attacks the divinity of Jesus, if you really are the Son of God. And then he appeals to Jesus' hunger. Now, hunger is a good thing. Hunger is designed into us by God. When our fuel starts running low, we feel sensations of hunger. We know that we should go eat. It is a gift of God. That desire for food is not a bad thing. 
But Satan is going to try to use that good, God-designed desire in order to derail the plans of God. Specifically, the temptation is this. Jesus, I know you're hungry. Why don't you just turn these rocks into loaves of bread? Which is kind of a weird way of making bread, but Jesus can do whatever he wants. What's so tempting about What's so wrong about that? Here's what it is. Will you, Jesus, trust your Father to provide what you need, or will you take things into your own hands now because it's been 40 days and he hasn't given you any bread, and so it's about time that you got yourself some bread? Will you trust the plan and the timing of your Heavenly Father? Or will you short-circuit that and take things into your own hands to provide bread for yourself? It's not really about the food or the hunger. It's about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Is this a relationship of trust? Can the Father be trusted? Will he provide for the Son? Or will the Son take a shortcut? Now he's like, a shortcut? He's already been waiting 40 days for food. That is not really a shortcut. Here we are at the end of that 40 days. It's almost done. Jesus is at his physically weakest point. And Satan says, just get yourself some bread. You can't trust the Father. He's left you hungry for 40 days. Jesus responds in verse 4, but he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy where uh, God is talking to the, the Israelites about their exodus from Egypt and how he gave them that manna, that special bread. And he says this, Moses says this, and he humbled you and let you hunger and, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here in Deuteronomy, and then Jesus quoting it, he's saying, look, yeah, bread, food is good, but that's not enough for a person to truly live. You got to feed yourself. You got to consume the words of God as a spiritual, as a holy bread. Now, Jesus would refer to himself as the bread, and he would refer to his words as the bread, Either way, that is the real bread. Yes, you need your regular food. You need calories and all of that stuff. But you can't live, truly live, with food as your only source of fuel. Jesus is saying you've got to trust in, you've got to consume, you have to ingest the words of God too. Right now, what we're doing is we're sharing a meal together. We're going through pieces of the word, a little bit of bread from here, a little bit of gravy from here, and, and we're putting everything together. And you can walk out of here fed on the word of God, or you can walk out of here hungry. The food is placed in front of you. Will you ingest it today? Or will you let it sit on the table? Well, that gets us through the first of our three images, bread. Now we're going to turn to our second, the shield. When you're faced with temptation, will you rely on the word of God for your defense? 
or will you rely on something else? Back in Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So let's look at the image here, artist rendition of the temple complex. And when it says the pinnacle of the temple, what he's probably talking about is not the actual temple, temple building in the middle, but this corner that overlooks the Kidron Valley. It's the highest point from the top down to the bottom of the valley. It's about 300 feet vertical there. So four times the height of the courthouse in Greenville, right? High height. And just in the blink of an eye, Jesus and Satan are hanging out on the top there. And Satan says to him, just throw yourself off if you're the son of God. Right? Question is divinity again. Just throw yourself off. And then, because maybe Jesus used scripture to counter the first temptation, Satan now uses scripture to tempt Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 92. And by quoting this psalm, he's trying, I'm sorry, Psalm 91, he tries to get Jesus to rebel against the Father. He says, if you throw yourself off of here, according to Psalm 91, the Father will command his angels to bear you up and rescue you. Now, why would that be a temptation? The temptation is, is this. The next three years of Jesus' life are going to be filled with hardship. He's going to walk thousands of miles. He's, he's going to be hungry. He's going to be thirsty. He's going to be you know, sleeping on the ground in the middle of nowhere. He's going to be rejected by people he loves, people who used to love him. He's going to be rejected by total strangers. He's going to go through all kinds of suffering over the next three years. The people are ultimately going to be unconvinced that he is God in the flesh or the king of Israel, the rightful ruler of the world. And in this moment, as he's on the pinnacle of the temple, he could, instead of starting into three years of suffering, he could short-circuit, he could shortcut all of those, and he could come in with a real bang. Imagine the crowds watching as Jesus throws himself off the top point of the pinnacle. Angels swoop down, rescue him, gather him up, set him gently on the ground. That would be a way to start an amazing public ministry. Nobody could deny who had seen that, that there wasn't something special, miraculous about this man. He would immediately have all the attention of the crowds. He could teach them the things that he needs to teach them. They would believe him because of his amazing entrance. Will he shield himself from that three years of hardship Walking, preaching, hunger, toil, rejection by just coming in with a bang now. Besides, Psalm 91 says that the Father will rescue him. Just because someone is quoting the Bible to you doesn't mean what they're saying is biblical. In this case, Satan himself is using the very words of God, twisting them, pulling them out of context in order to try to trick the Son of God. If you read all of Psalm 91, the main point of the psalm is that you need to trust in God the Father who is your shield. He is your protector. He will 
hold you in times of trouble. Satan uses that to turn it around to say, disobey the Father and protect yourself. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't tempt, don't test the Father. We would say don't manipulate the Father. Yeah, if you jump off of here, he's going to rescue you. But that is not what he's calling you to do. In the Trinity, all three members are God. But there's a hierarchy of authority. The Son submits to the Father. And in this particular case, if he had said, okay, I'm going to throw myself off of here and I'm going to manipulate the Father into sending his angels to come rescue me, he would be stepping out of that authority structure. He'd be putting himself in authority over the Father and breaking that relationship. But he doesn't do it. He's not tricked. There's one more temptation. This leads us to our third image, the image of the crown. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In each of these temptations, Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy, which, if we're honest, most of us would just rather skip over if we're reading through the Bible. We think of it as not a particularly helpful or applicable book. It's got a whole bunch of weird stuff in it. Some of it's repeated from other things, and sometimes it's boring. And yet Jesus chooses three passages from Deuteronomy in this temptation in order to fight against temptation. This is his chance to be king of the world. Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just fall down and worship me. You don't have to go through the three years of pain and toil and suffering and heartache. You don't have to go through the last week of your life when it is the worst. Instead, you can take the crown right now and you can rule the world. Now, Jesus is the rightful king of the universe, so why would Satan tempt him like this? And why now? Well, Jesus is in a humble state. He took on flesh. He he limited himself. He's God in the flesh, but intentionally limited, so he feels hunger. He feels exhaustion. He feels, feels heartache, and he is worn out right now. He's humiliated, really. He's hungry. He's lonely. Strange to think of the God of the universe as being lonely. He's been alone for 40 days. He's exhausted. And he's being led around by his chief enemy. Does Satan even have the authority to offer these things? To say you can be the ruler of the whole world. And is Jesus worn down enough that he just might fall for it? Well, he's been tempted to take a phony power and authority from an imposter god. And now he's had enough. He exercises his true authority and he commands the imposter to flee. And Satan must flee. Verse 11, the devil left him, 
behold, angels came and they were ministering to him. So he's been tempted to make bread in order to take a shortcut to the, the provision of God. He's been tempted to be his own shield against suffering instead of trusting in the Father as a shield. And he's been tempted to crown himself king rather than be the humble servant that he has been called to be for the next three years. He now rests, and when he's done with that rest, he starts into his three years of public ministry. Fast forward three years, and we get to today, Palm Sunday, which is again about the crown. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and the crowds are convinced that he is the king conquering the Romans. That he's the Messiah come to rescue them from the oppressive Roman Empire. He doesn't come like a king would be expected. He, he comes riding on a donkey, not a noble stallion. There has been no great war, no great victory. There's not a band of soldiers. There are not trumpets and royal heralds and all that. It's just dusty-footed Jesus riding on a donkey with a bunch of bedraggled guys behind him. But something has happened to the crowd in Jerusalem, and they are convinced that he is their deliverer, and they welcome him as a conquering king. Matthew 21, I'm going to read 1 through 11 in one big chunk here. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, him, and put on them their cloaks, and he, said, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's hard for us to imagine this scene. There's no sound amplification. There's no security checkpoints. There's just chaos of thousands of people seeming to spontaneously gather because they have heard that the prophet Jesus has come and they hope that he is a conquering king. He is the king, but not like what they expect. He has not come to kick out the Romans, but he has come to conquer sin and death. And when they yell out, Hosanna, they are saying, save us, we pray. That's what the word means. And they are right to pray to Jesus and to ask him for salvation, but they're, they're not really focused on the right salvation. They want a political and a military salvation, but he has come to bring them a spiritual salvation. And in this moment, Jesus faces another temptation. He knows the suffering that is coming this week. The crowds are on his side. 
They want him to be king. And he could take the crown right now. He could take the shortcut. Instead, he comes into Jerusalem and he does something that nobody expected. He goes to the temple overturning the money changers' tables. Those who were taking advantage of the people of God who wanted to worship God, he, he destroys their business. And then he disappears. Just gone and into the crowd. Nobody knows where he goes. He could have taken the crown, but instead he disappears. When we see him next in Matthew, we see the bread come back. Somewhere in a normal home on that Thursday night, Jesus is gathered with his closest friends and they're going to celebrate the Passover meal together. Jesus is going to put a twist on that that will change history. He will talk about the fact that the bread of the meal is his body broken for us. That in a few short hours, he will be hung on a cross, broken, offering his body as a sacrifice for our sin. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So just like in the beginning of his ministry, he's tempted to provide for himself bread rather than trust in the Father. Now at the end of his ministry, he provides himself as bread for us. He's tempted in that moment, I'm sure. As he says, this is my body broken for you, he, he's probably thinking, I don't have to do this. None of, none of these people deserve to have my body broken for them. And yet he goes ahead and he does it anyway. Tempted to provide for himself, and instead he provides for us. Finally, we come back to the idea of the shield. We come back to the bread. We come back to the crown. Where do we see the shield in the last week of Jesus' life? During the temptation at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was tempted to protect himself from the hardship and the pain and the suffering, to be his own shield rather than trust in his Father. After supper... Jesus and his disciples left the city and went to one of his favorite places, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he loved to go and pray. And he's got some serious praying to do because he knows that in a matter of hours he will be arrested and beaten and hung on a cross. So again in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, we read this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The the emotional weight on him is such that it feels like it could just kill him. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, 
let this cup pass from me, this, this cup of the judgment and the wrath of God that's going to be poured out him in a matter of hours. If it's possible, let this cup pass, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So not my plan, not my desires, but yours. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And Judas walks up. So what's going on here? What's the temptation? He, he knows the incredible pain that is coming in the next few hours. He knows what it means to be crucified. He knows what it means to be beaten. He knows what it means to be betrayed and abandoned by his friends. And he doesn't want to do it. Father, please take this from me. If there is another way, let's take that path. But there is no other way. To rescue us, Jesus must take upon himself all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he must take it to the cross. If he walks away from that in this moment, we are all lost. And so in his vulnerability, in his humanity, he does not want that pain. But out of love for us, and out of obedience to the Father and His plan, He will go through with it. He could be His own shield right now. He could short-circuit it, take the shortcut. He could be the shield against the most incredible suffering that He will experience. Instead, He obediently submits Himself to the Father, trusting in Him instead of shielding Himself. So bread, shield, and crown. These three serve as bookends of the ministry of Jesus. All three in the beginning, all three in the end. And I wonder, where do you see yourself in these three? Where does your life, your heart, where does your temptation intersect with these three? Could it be bread? that you are tempted to provide for yourself rather than rely on God's perfect provision and timing for that provision? Are you hungry for bread, whatever that would be for you? And are you tired of waiting for God to provide it? Are you tempted to lie and cheat to get the sale or close the deal? Are you tempted to do something sneaky or underhanded or just cut some corners? to get the promotion or whatever it is that you're looking for? Or how about your love life? Are you willing to live with integrity and impurity and wait for God to bring you a godly spouse or will you just settle for what you can have right now? 
Will you wait and trust for your Father to provide for you the bread that he has for you? What about shield? Are you facing some kind of danger? Are you afraid of some kind of pain? Do you suspect that hardship is coming and you want to avoid it? Are you seeking to shield yourself? Are you seeking to be sheltered and shielded by someone else other than God? Do you put your security and your trust in wealth so that your job becomes your chief concern? Or do you want to be loved and accepted by people and you will do anything to get the smile and the look of acceptance from somebody else? Maybe you're willing to have God as your shield, but you want to dictate the timing. God, I want you to show up right now in this way and protect me from this threat or this pain. You want to manipulate God. Maybe it's the crown. Maybe you're tempted to run ahead of God, as Jesus was tempted to run ahead of the plan, ahead of the timing, take, take the crown early. Maybe you, you have this desire to be something, to be known by, some, by, uh, by a certain label, to achieve a certain thing. You, you think you're, you're destined for something, and you want to take that now, when God is actually calling you to wait hard to wait on God's timing when we can plow ahead. So we see all these three. We see the bread, the shield, the crown. We see them in the temptation of Jesus. We see them in the last week of Jesus' life, starting with Palm Sunday. These temptations are the same temptations that we face each day. And I pray that you are encouraged that your Savior went through these and more, that he completely understands all of your temptation, that he fell for none of it. He stood strong. He submitted himself to the will of the Father, even knowing all the pain and the suffering that was coming, and he did it to save your life. So when you're alone, when you are tempted in that way to do that thing, to have that thing, to whatever it is. Know that your Savior understands. And he has made it possible for you to be free of that temptation. He has paid the price to set you free. He is completely faithful. He is completely trustworthy. And he will provide for you what you need. In that moment and in all of your life. I pray that you will see all of Jesus' story through the lens of these temptations early on and temptations at the end. I pray that every, every time we, we get to Palm Sunday or Easter, you will think back to those temptations at the beginning and you will be reminded of the amazing way that Jesus humbly submitted himself to the will of God the Father in order to rescue us. <laughs> Owen's got some thoughts on that. So, as we go out today, remember, you don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with you. Instead, you have a high priest 
who was tempted in every way, just like us, but without sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we celebrate your triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday, I thank you that you, even, even when it was so close to the end, you didn't take the shortcut. You didn't claim the crown. I thank you that you offered yourself as bread to us rather than take the bread and comfort yourself. I thank you that you trusted that, that you could be vulnerable, that you could